You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're listening to 3CR's Breakfast Summer Programming. During the year, we heard from so many incredible voices. Tune in to hear our top picks from 2023. Join us on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR digital streaming at 3cr.org.au or via the community radio app. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. I would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. Hello, I'm Inez from 3CR's Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am and this is our very first summer programming special for this year with the theme of harm reduction. Now we've covered a lot on harm reduction this year, so first up we have our opening segment from our International Overdose Awareness Day, where we discuss Pennington's Institute's 2023 Annual Overdose Report and the importance of the medically supervised injecting room and have a chat about stigma. So take a listen. Hello, hello. Uh, so I am Inez, for those who don't know. I currently work in the AOD public health sector. Um, I'm also a mental health therapist. So I kind of have a dual role <laughs> um, in working with making accessible health information, providing information to really priority populations, as well as working kind of on the, the front line. I know I don't work in community health, but I just wanted to go through the Pennington Overdose Report Um, but also use that as a touching off point for other conversations that we can have. All opinions are of my own and they're not associated with any of the organisations I work with, um, but I feel really passionate about this area. So Pennington release an annual overdose report every year um, and it highlights you know, the need for really ongoing long-term investment into drug-related harm, prevention, reduction initiatives, as well as, you know, treatment services. So there's a, a whole range of things. The main thing that really stood out to me in the current report is that, you know, people who are of lower socioeconomic backgrounds um, are really facing a, a large brunt of what's happening right now, um, particularly First Nations people, particularly people who um, really significant trauma. And with the medically supervised injecting room, a majority of the people that you know, use the service, get support with the service, they'll meet the criteria for PTSD. Also from the tour that I've done, a lot of them will have really significant trauma from childhood. And a lot of us know that trauma isn't just what 
happens to you. It is how people respond to it. Uh, and that keeps repeating and you keep being turned away. Alcohol and other drug use is a way that you cope with it. Um, and not always. Sometimes people do it to experiment, to rebel, to cope. The list is long. It'll change. But it's important to, I think, recognize that fact. Just a little side note, you can overdose on lots of things, yeah. on lots of prescription drugs. Um, it is not only the, you know, the drugs that people will associate with an overdose, even though I think those are important to recognize. Mm. When we're having these conversations, they are for the benefit of everyone. Um, if you need information on how to take Panadol safely, that will benefit everyone as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something we're going to touch on in the, in the conversation with Chris at Karma as well. Um, because I feel like, especially for people that use, uh, recreational kind of party drugs, um, there's a lot less of awareness about, um, overdose and also, yeah, just much less of a discussion about overdose as something that may be a risk when you're engaging, um, in dabbling recreationally in in various substance use. 100%. Yeah, and I think just coming back to the report, uh, well, what we what Pennington has found is that drug overdose is a leading cause of death for Australians. Um, sadly, there were 2,231 drug-induced deaths that were reported in 2021, and of those, 1,675 were unintentional. And over the five years, kind of like to 2021, more than two-thirds unintentional drug-induced deaths have involved two or more types of drugs. So in 2022, that is opioids of heroin, but it also involves like pharmaceutical opioids. Um, and they were the most common drug type detected in un unintentional drug deaths, followed by like benzodiazepines that kind of help you relax. And that's like Valium, stimulants, kind of like cocaine, antidepressants like SSSR, SSRIs um, and alcohol. And is interesting to see in the report is like uh, oftentimes when an overdose occur, it'll be something called polydrug use, mm -hmm. which means you're using different drugs kind of together. People are also overdosing on alcohol um, and also indigenous indigenous people are more than three times likely to experience unintentional drug-induced deaths compared to non-Indigenous Australians, particularly men living in rural and regional areas and those in lower socioeconomic areas. When we're looking at, you know, there's the data, right? We have the data. <laughs> but then when we, like, take a tour of the medically supervised injecting room, um, or even if you look at the data from, like, King's Cross in Sydney, it is one of the only evidence-based health strategies that works. It prevents people from overdosing. It saves people's lives. Yeah. And it is one of the most contested. And I think that's really upsetting. And one of the things that stood out to me about the medically supervised injecting centre, particularly with, around, like, hep C treatment, got into a really far point. Like, you can – it's very minimal – Ininvasive treatment at the moment and very little side effects. Um, so people kind of just put it off. They're like, oh, I'll deal with it. It's like something that I, I'll do in a bit. Um, and what North Richmond were doing were like originally going to the community health centers, P putting it outside of a center, um, means that a person has to book an appointment, follow up for the appointment. Yeah. It has like about 10 steps to even get to the appointment. Um, and the only thing they changed is they started testing in-house and also treating in-house. And once they started doing that, people felt really good yeah, yeah. <laughs> that they were like, I actually, 
you know, helped achieve something, and that's really amazing. And they feel like more compelled um, to work with other things in their house. Yeah, I was part of a pilot program. Like I can't. I think it was in the early two thousands or something. It was a, we were, who were um, given access to hepatitis um, C treatment while we were still using, yeah. and that was a you know there was a time where you couldn't get access to Hep C treatment if you were you know you're an active user. And, and it was in a group sort of situation and the sort of, the conversations, um, and this is that turning point and it was one of the best like health experiences mm-hmm. I've ever had. And, and that was the, in those days it was still interferon and ribavirin. It was like 12 months mm-hmm. and the side effects could be really heavy back in the day. But the fact that you was, you were going through that with other people certainly helped me mm-hmm. and the peer workers. Can I say like a shout out to all the peer workers out there? Like were picking, picking me up, taking me to my appointments. It was, I wanted to swear then. It was just amazing. Um, yeah, it was one of the best health experiences I've ever had. Because when you're in crisis, as you said, it's really hard to make those decisions. And any setback is an excuse not to go th- go through mm-hmm. with it. Like whatever, like I'm the best, like I was one of the best people at making excuses, you know, to self-sabotage or whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, those programs, they're so important for people. It's like, it's a chronic health issue. Like hepatitis C was a major, well, I don't know, like I don't know the stats on it right now, but at the time it was a major, uh, you know, it was, it was taking people like annually. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. a yeah. shout out to all the peer workers and yeah. 100%. Yeah. And, and like the, the fact that, that peer work and that understanding from within community, that community-led understanding um, is rather than a top-down model that demonizes people for not uh, displaying appropriate health-seeking behavior. It's really meeting people where they're at um, and saying, what do you need um, to be able to access the treatments that are useful and beneficial to you. Yeah. yeah. And we also know that a public health response works. Mm-hmm. Um, and having like an overdose prevention center like North Richmond or hopefully the new one in the city, there has to be centers where there is, where there is actual need. Um, and also the fact that there, as you've mentioned, like having on-site healthcare, on-site activities, hepatitis C treatment, it just removes one extra barrier. Yeah. People have connection to activities that they can do. Also, just ha- yeah, have the connection. If you think about people that are entering the service, maybe they are like maybe injecting alone or are using other drugs alone, um, and being able to like come in and get the support is really important. And and also, if there's other allied health, like people have problem with their feet, with their backs, housing, know, a lot legal, of people, yeah. yeah, housing. You know, people because we don't have storage in this city for people that are homeless. They're carrying their stuff all day man they're moved on constantly by police security guards all the rest of it mm-hmm. it's really important that, that these things are situated where there's other allied health support so yeah big shout out yeah absolutely obviously an overdose prevention center is definitely one part of the puzzle um, but there is so much more that we can do as a community and i think the one thing that i would like to maybe just talk about very briefly is stigma because i mm. think this is a huge part of why we're not able to have like productive public health based response conversations it is it we know that these centers work we also know a public health response works but people um have like getting caught up in stigma or their personal feelings about it and if we just look at the the data we know that you know 
supporting people where they're at um, with these centers is really important. Um, but yeah, I guess with, you know, stigma as well, we know that stigma is a really like complex, like social problem. Um, and often it'll occur in lots of different areas like you can develop internalized stigma over like ashamed i want to use alone which will also increase your risk um maybe you feel worried about how your like relationships in your life will respond um so you keep that private as well Uh, but we know that strong supportive relationships are so important people don't reach out for help until their needs are absolutely critical and that's probably five years in so being able to you know, maybe talk to like one or two people around you that really listen to you, that use like the kind of language of like, you're a person that uses drugs, you're a person with a dependence, um, you're a person to me first, and I care about you. And I think it's really important to remember that. Yeah. And stigma is, you know, often really serious and really subtle and leads to like loss of social status, exclusion, rejection, unfair treatment and discrimination. And a cycle is created where people avoid or fear seeking help, only seek help when their needs are critical, and then they keep experiencing stigma and discrimination. And also with healthcare, it'll show up a lot there too. So I know there's a lot of things to have in the conversation, but I really implore people to really think about the like a stigma in if they're like a healthcare worker, allied health worker, or or just how you talk about people that use drugs or people that have a dependence. Um, it is an emotional issue, but yeah, yeah making sure that we t- treat people with the dignity and safety and care that they reserve. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now we're going to have to wrap up this segment, but I know that, um, you know, this might have raised some, you know, concerns for folks who are listening and just want to remind people that if they want to talk to somebody, Inez, did you want to? Yes, there is a service called the National Alcohol and Other Drug Hotline, um, and that is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That is 1-800-250-015. That's 1-800-250-015, and you'll be really directed to your statewide local alcohol or other drug service where you can get counselling, treatment, or support. Yep, and if you need to talk to anybody about, um, you know, just general uh, concerns around mental health, around how you're feeling, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. You can call Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. That's 1300-224-636. And for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, you can always call 13YARN. That is 139276. 139276. Oh, I just like the word that keeps popping up in our conversations it's health, is health. This is a health issue. Unfortunately, it's it, people are being criminalised because of like you know, like the establishment and its middle class sort of values that don't want to address it as a health issue. Um, we don't have enough time to go into those reasons right now. But, yeah, I think it's important to understand that, the, you know, these are health issues when people that use drugs, you know, we don't see people that drink alcohol as, as criminals. So I think yeah. that's an important thing to point out. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Spike. That's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. So 
services will be cut, jobs may well be lost and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. And we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we are now joined by return guest Chris Goff, who's the executive director of the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimization and Advocacy, or CAMA. And Chris is going to be joining us again today to provide updates on the CANTES program, which is Australia's first fixed site drug and pill testing facility. And I guess... Uh, and a particularly important thing to talk about in the context of today, which is International Overdose Awareness Day. So good morning, Chris. Good morning, Priya, and everybody. How are you? Good, thank you. And um, how about yourself? Yeah, very well on this International Overdose Day. Yeah, and uh, I guess, you know, last time that we, we spoke with you in January this year, um, Cantest was six months into its operation providing drug checking services in the Canberra CBD. And so uh, in, in view of the conversation that we're going to be having today and how it fits into International Overdose Awareness Day, can you remind listeners about how the service operates as well as give us a little bit of an overview of how the program's tracking a year on? Yeah, sure. So Cantest, um, it operates two days a week. It's not a lot of hours, just um, just six hours at the moment on Thursday afternoon and Friday night. And um, so what happens is people who want to get their uh, drugs checked can, can come in, um, have a chat to people um, on site, let the people know what they think that they've got in their possession. Um, give the give the drug to our chemical analyst who'll then run it through a, a series of tests and machines and amazing science um, and it will come back uh, with um, with a result on on what the drug or drugs that are in the sample that you've given are and also hopefully um, some kind of indication of how pure they are mm-hmm. uh, and so from there uh, then we'll um, talk to the person who's come in and let them know a little bit about the harm reduction advice around the drug, um, and and then hopefully uh, some the and, and we can also do uh, naloxone testing and uh, not sorry not naloxone um, training on site, um, fentanyl testing on site, and things like that to mm-hmm. to really inform people uh, about the drug that they're going to use, what it actually is, and and that's really important because one of the things that's come up and a year on is that you know about fifty percent of the drugs that are coming into CanTest actually aren't what the people think they are. Uh, and so it's been a really important step forward in making sure that people who want to go and party, especially, are able to do that as safely as they can. And we also give information about things like making sure that you're with your mates, making sure, you know, that you've got someone who um, who's going to look after you or you can ring if there's an emergency, stuff, stuff like that. Um, so yeah. it's been really useful uh, harm reduction um, uh, service uh, and it's been really well taken up by the community so far. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it sounds like it's been going brilliantly so far. I can't believe it's it's only open two days a week because it seems like such a such a vital service. So, um, 
this brings me to to the evaluation of you know this pilot. So in April, the final program evaluation report was published for CanTest. So could you take us through some of the sec- central recommendations of the report based on you know the positive outcomes you've seen? Sure. So. Um, some of the key findings of the report um, were that so so really the evaluation looked at how the service has been implemented. Um, was it implemented as it was intended? And of course, it was a resounding yes. And um, and then it started to look at um, what service elements were needed and accepted by service users. What are the key char- characteristics of those who access the service? Starting to look at the sort of people who are coming into the service and how the service was received. And look, the the community has really received the service very well and has been really positive in coming forward and, and giving samples. We found that the people who use the service. Um, um, the majority of them are young. Um, Two thirds, sixty-six percent of primary service users um, were under um, thirty-four, mm. um, and so so the young crowd is really coming in on that Thursday and that Friday night, and um, and getting their their drugs checked for the weekend. And the other thing is that when um, we also did some extended hours before festivals. Um, and they were really successfully used by people who were actually planning ahead for their festival on the weekend, getting their drugs checked and having conversations about, you know, how they could be safest. Um, so, I mean, the other thing was that there were a few things that came out of the, the, um, of the evaluation that I think we do need to take into account. And one of those was that we're not getting um, as many uh, methamphetamine and heroin samples coming in as we would have liked. So that is that old usually that's that I mean I'm making a big generalization here but we've got a big cohort of people who use methamphetamines and heroin who are older um, and 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 they are actually the people who are probably most at risk of that um, opioid overdose that we reverse with naloxone mm-hmm. so we'd like to see a lot more of the community coming in and in the future we really need to think about how we can successfully engage with that community and get that service out to them so it's the most useful and we can get that most information about opioid overdose out there and as much naloxone as we can. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, this probably, um, you know, there are probably factors around there that relate to uh, the limited hours that the the service is funded to be open, but I'm sure in terms of um, outreach capacities to to make sure that you're you're able to sort of get to folks who... um, you know, who might not be proactively coming in to use the service. Um, but the report also notes some interesting unintended positive outcomes, such as social media-based community alerts when unfamiliar or dangerous substances are detected in drug tests. So can you speak a bit more to this phenomenon? Because I'm I'm interested in, in some of the novel substances or um, unknown quantities you've come across in the period CanTest has been open, which includes a previously unknown variant of ketamine, which Karma's recently published a fact sheet on. So, yeah, can you tell us a bit about this? Yeah, so this has been one really amazing part of the service is that kind of back-end stuff about when we get the results, being having the ability to then message to the broader community about them. And so, um, yeah, so CanTest has been doing um, doing its chemical analysis on those things and we're finding some really, um, you know, some variants and some unusual stuff out there. Uh, in about 50% of cases, uh, the drug that's walking through the door isn't what the person thinks. 
you know. And so it became really important to be able to broadcast this message, not only to the one person who brings it in, but also to, to other people in the community who might be using that drug and to make people aware of just how diverse and unpredictable, um, you know, the drug supply in Australia is. So what we do is we take those and we have a, we take the drugs as they come in and if we see something unusual, um, a, a small group will get together, um, and that, that consists of the ANU chemical analysts, um, there's a, a wonderful, um, uh, emergency physician David Caldecott um, who also give advice to ACT government karma and directions who run the service with us um, and we'll kind of have a, have a talk conversation about what the potential is for harm in the community whether it's worth um, a, a community alert or a, even a, like a red alert um, uh, where ACT Health actually kind of pumps out the information via a whole range of different public health sources. Mm. And so we've got kind of a number, so we can kind of determine whether, oh my goodness, this is something that's really dangerous, we need to spread widely. And in that case, you know, we can kind of get it out to the, uh, to a, um, ACT Health will get it out to, um, you know, in that broad kind of way to all health professionals and, and into the media and things like that. And then that very quickly will be able to spread across Australia because we link into um, a network called the Prompt Response Network, which is being set up across Australia so that all of this information can be known throughout Australia. And likewise, if it's a community alert, that's when kind of karma gets involved um, and and really kind of you know, adds information about how, you know, tricks for the community and things to think about in terms of harm reduction advice. And then we can put it out on our socials CanTest puts it out on their socials, uh, Directions puts it out on their socials, um, you know, and, and a whole, and then it also goes to the Prompt Response Network through another kind of feature that they have, which is all about community called the Know. And so the object is to get it out to as many people as possible. And we know that drugs aren't stationary and they move around Australia. We, we know that they come from their entry points that they spread. And so it's really important, not only that we're able to message this stuff to the Canberra, and community in the ACT, but also to inform the rest of Australia about what potentially is out there and what to look out for. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we also have, uh, you know, accounts like on social media like Seshed, who I, you know, I follow and I know a lot of other people follow as well, um, mm -hmm. who are then amplifying this information. Um, and so it, it really, you know, it's about getting it in front of as many eyes as possible so that people are aware of this. So, Considering that today is International Overdose Awareness Day, it would also be good to get your thoughts on how drug checking services might contribute to both a broader awareness of overdose risks, including from substances other than opioids, as well as to drug destigmatization and decriminalization efforts overall. Yeah, so, so look, I think um, drug checking definitely needs to be part of our harm reduction armory. Um, and, and so, like, as I said, we, we do have the ability to, um, to do uh, naloxone brief interventions on site, train people and give them the naloxone. But also, if you look at the latest Pennington report, you'll see that there's almost 20%, just under 20% of fatal overdoses that are happening just with stimulants alone. That's something that we, that has been increasing, um, since 2000, just after 2000, when we started kind of looking at this stuff. And, um, and it's really concerning. And so, you know, part of this, part of this, 
um, architecture of drug checking that needs to be rolled out more broadly has has been, you know, that uh, the ability to test some of these stimulants, which are like the um, like you know what was you know, like like the ketamine variety that we found in, in which seemed to be quite ubiquitous for several months last year. Um, so the ability to kind of know what the drug is, and a lot of them are very unique and have never been seen before. And so what that's doing is it's it's giving us some information, but we really need to build on this next step. So we're coming up with this big list of quite unusual drugs, which we actually don't know a lot about in terms of their effect when they're used. And so the next step, I think, is to be able to reduce overdose. We really need to start to gather some of this information as we're doing at CanTest and to start working on how do we produce harm reduction, good harm reduction advice for these new drugs? How do we gather information about um, you know, what the experience is like and how it's being used in community? And then how can we message that back so that people can be safest from overdose? Um, and so I think the other thing is that we we suspect that there's a lot of variability across Australia, but we really don't know that much about the drug uh, about drugs, you know, in in other geographical areas. And so it is really important that um, the drug checking is taken very seriously, and it does need to be fit for purpose for the actual city or or the spot that it's going to be located in, um, and. And, and I must say, to that end, we've done great work at CanTest, but if you guys remember the original journey was actually to have that pill testing available at festivals mm-hmm. um, and actually in collaboration with programs like DanceWise at Harm Reduction Victoria and in New South Wales, newer runs, um, which provide care spaces and a lot of really in-depth information um, for people, things like trip sitting. Um, and so, you know, we do need to keep going. That is that best practice when you have a festival to have those two harm reduction strategies working on site um, and we're having a big problem at the moment with um, with insurance not being mm-hmm. able to get insured and which is totally crazy right because you know drug checking at festivals is actually taking away risk from festival yeah. providers so so we have a lot of work to do around overdose in terms of making sure that we really understand that you know it has topped it tops the road toll it, and it continues to top the road toll year upon year for the last, I'm not sure of the date, but it's kind of mid-2010s. Mm-hmm. It started to kind of head off into the spectrum. Um, so we really do have a crisis here. When we look at America, that is an enor- and Canada, that's an enormous fentanyl crisis over there. But even within Australia, um, a person is dying every four hours of overdose. And so we, this is an absolute emergency, and we really need to ramp up services like drug checking um, because overdose is starting to look very different than it used to look where the majority was just overdosed through heroin. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think, you know, the the work that Cantest is doing that to raise awareness about the changing profiles of overdose risk is is crucial in this regard. And so just to wrap up, is Cantest set to continue for the foreseeable future? And do you think we can expect a wider availability of these services across Australia, like you've indicated that we need? Yeah, look, I, I really hope so. So, can testers, um, so we got a, so we'll be up and running for, um, 
for 18 months, which is really good. Uh, and so what, what that, um, what that means and, and why is that? Why isn't it permanent? Well, the ACT government is just looking at that six hours that it's open, um, and, and wondering if there's a more integrated model for that. Um, you know, which is fine. And I think really important, especially given that we're not connecting as well as we would like to with some of the more marginalized community members out there. So I guess the ACT government just kind of giving us the heads up that we need to do a little bit more work to really bed down an efficient way of doing things. Like you were saying, and I was saying before, having it open six hours a week, you know, there, there could be some improvements to that, right? And we could integrate it with other services um, to make sure that people who inject drugs are able to access and are able to get equipment. And you know, So there's a bunch of stuff around integrating the service into the way ACT Health um, and drug and alcohol kind of sector and the community organisations that surround can test to make sure that it's done properly. So, uh, so I'm really hopeful that after this extension period, you know, we'll get the green light to go ahead as a permanent service. Um, we know that there are some moves up around the country, which is fabulous. Queensland has said that they're going to have one up by the end of the year. Um, I don't know what that looks like, but I will be um, barracking for them. Likewise, um, the, some of the, the injecting centres are considering how they can work um, drug checking into their service delivery, and I think that's really important because the majority of people who go to the medically supervised injecting centre and the injecting room, mm-hmm. um, you know, are that marginalised community who can test um, isn't seeing as much as we would like to of. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> again, the diversity of so people are starting to look at okay, what's the situation in our backyard, and how can we integrate drug checking into it? That's really exciting. So. Um, you know, my message is, come on, guys, let's do this thing. We need to kind of map, you know, where the drugs are, what they are, and some of their effects so that we can be safe mm-hmm. and so that we really know the kind of marketplace that we're buying from. Um, and, and, and I hope in that way we can all keep, keep safe and, and have a wonderful time. Yeah. You know, I think it is such a fantastic and vital service that CanTest is providing, and hopefully we see a lot more of that spread out in the future um, to, you know, promote harm reduction and make sure we're keeping each other safe in community um, as we continue to uh, develop a further awareness of, you know, these emerging drug variants and the profile of, of overdose in Australia. So thank you so much, Chris, for taking the time to speak with me this morning. No worries, and happy International Overdose Awareness Day, everyone. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. And that was Chris Goff, Executive Director of the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimization and Advocacy, or CAMA, who joined us again today to provide updates on the CanTest program, Australia's first fixed-site drug and pill testing facility. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And now we're going to go to a track by Adresi called Alab. Bilhava, 
Scott Drummond, who is Program Manager at the Victorian Alcohol and Drug Association, peak for the Victorian AOD treatment sector, and is here to chat about the surge in fatal overdoses across the board in Victoria during 2022, as detailed in the data released by the Coroner's Court. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Scott. 
Pleasure. Thanks for having me. No, of course. Welcome back. Um, Scott, uh, these numbers are truly gut-wrenching. Uh, heroin-related fatal overdoses being the highest since 2000, 23 years, with the city of Melbourne having the highest number, which is 24 people in 2022, which is almost two people who die every month of an easily preventable death just in the CBD alone. Could you tell us more about the data released by the coroner's court in Victoria and why we're seeing the highest number since 2000? Sure. Well, you, you raised some interesting questions and, and we can have a bit of a think and a bit of a chat about those and, and, and look into those. So you're right. Now, the heroin overdose deaths have doubled uh, and the total overdose death numbers in 2022 was 549. And just by way of comparison... The 2022 road toll death was 210, so it gives you an indication of the severity and the significance of these data. Now, the coroner's court investigates all deaths from suspected non-natural causes, including overdoses. And what they try and do is uh, look at those, understand those deaths, and make a series of recommendations. But your question around why the numbers have increased is interesting, and it's difficult to pinpoint a specific driver, I guess, but we could make some general comments. So we know from the data that overdose deaths reduced during the pandemic. They dropped slightly, but overall and over the last 10 years, they've increased. And post-pandemic, they've spiked, and we're seeing the greatest number uh, in 10 years. So it's in likelihood due to uh, an increased supply post-pandemic. There's more uh, drugs, uh, heroin in particular, available. It could also be due to an increased purity of uh, drugs. So we know that when people are using drugs, if they are unfamiliar with the content and there's an increase in purity, it's likely to increase the risk of overdose. And we also know that an increased use of heroin Uh, in Melbourne and in the CBD has been reported through wastewater data analysis. So there's a few things that we can put together there that that tell us that, say, with an increased supply, potential increase in purity and an increase in use, in fact, of heroin in particular uh, that that are contributing to these overdose deaths. But as you point out, the overdose deaths are not just illicit drugs. There are a range of other things that uh, are involved here, and we can have a think about that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. I mean, we're also seeing alcohol-related fatal overdoses Mm. is the highest, at least since 2009 in Victoria. Fatal overdoses where synthetic substances were a contributing factor are up 2,000% in five years, from two deaths in only 2018, which is not that long ago, to 46 in 2022. And fatal overdoses involving you know, alcohol and illegal drugs are the highest since at least 2009. We're seeing an increase in preventable, preventable deaths across the board. What are we missing here to ensure people get the support they need? So I'll touch on the synthetics first, is that you make a good point there, um, an extraordinary increase in overdose deaths where synthetic drugs have contributed. Uh, We've seen just a huge spike over the last decade or so in the number of synthetic drugs. There's something like the the UN Office of Drugs and Crime have have catalogued something like over a 1,000 different novel psychoactive substances now. We don't know what's in them. Uh, It's hard to understand what the composition is without drug testing or drug checking. And this is one of the things to your question about what are we missing here to ensure people get the support they need. 
we would think that and argue that drug checking would be a, a key initiative that would be would help in this space. So we know that there's been five coronial recommendations calling for drug checking, which helps identify the different compounds in illicit drugs and helps inform safer decision-making. And, of course, the other one, and, and potentially the, the most obvious, is the overdose prevention centre or you know, what, what most people would probably call uh, supervised or safe, safe injecting facility. Uh, and the data tell us, in Melbourne in particular, that people are dying in the CBD and that the CBD needs an overdose prevention centre. The other thing, the other point I would make is that most fatal overdoses and most of the data here is a result of polydrug use. So in the majority of cases, around 77% of fatal deaths involve multiple drugs. Now that includes heroin, it includes um, illicit substances, like you point out, the synthetic substances, but it's also including alcohol here. Mm. And alcohol's a significant contributor to overdose deaths when you put them together, so we're talking about um, depressant-type drugs and combining those drugs and presenting significant risks. Yeah. And the other thing I would... Sorry, go on. No, no, you go, Scott. Just, just quickly, too, I think while we are thinking about illicit substances and focusing on, say, street-based use and overdoses uh, in the context of heroin use, we just can't assume that these data is exactly street-based drug use and pointing only to that. So, for example, out of the 549 overdoses, we know that 150 of those, or you know, approaching a third, are folks over the age of 55. So it's not only young people who are at risk here. And there may be more education, for example, required around uh, alcohol and prescription medication, for example, where uh, an older person may also at the same time have um, compromised health, for example. Yeah, absolutely. I think remembering that, yeah, definitely it is poly drug use. And so often what we say in the language in like the alcohol and other drug space is that alcohol is not exempt from being a drug, even though it is widely accessible and really ingrained in our culture, um, that it is still a drug that people need to use harm reduction um, skills for, but also people need support for. And so often it gets left out of the conversation and I think what you pointed out there is so important um, and totally I yeah, agree yeah absolutely yeah. and I think too just ask any ED physician on um, who works on a Friday or Saturday night or over the weekend about the impact of alcohol and they will tell you it far eclipses the impact of illicit drugs that are coming through the emergency departments. It's, uh, it's, it's a big impact and uh, as you say, it sometimes gets overlooked in the conversation, the uh, contributing the problems that alcohol uh, has, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, obviously, I don't want to solely focus on heroin-related fatal overdoses, but I do want to bring it back to it, only because there is the second CBD safe injecting room campaign, um, you know, with the release of, like, the Kenley report soon. Um, I, I just, I, I do want to focus on this, because what's interesting is the city of Melbourne, where there is no overdose prevention service, has almost twice the number of heroin-related fatal overdoses than that of the city of Yarra, where the North Richmond 
medically supervised injecting room is. And when you look at the data of the medically supervised injecting room, you see in 2018 the data for overdoses goes down. And I wonder what would have happened in 2018 that would have supported that. It is the medically supervised injecting room. Um, so what is the data telling us from the, like the city of Yarra, where there is a service, versus the city of Melbourne, where there is a desperate need for one? So the city of Yarra used to um, have the unenviable uh, record of having the highest number of fatal overdoses. Uh, that's now the city of Melbourne. And 75% of fatal overdoses in Melbourne are heroin-related, compared to currently 42% across Victoria. Um, and up to 2021, there was one heroin-related fatal overdose in Melbourne per month, and this has doubled now to two per month. So it's increasing and people are dying. We can see that. Now, the city of Yarra um, has the supervised injecting facility. We've seen their heroin-related overdoses go down. We would argue that the implementation of a supervised injecting facility in Melbourne is clear and the, the need is urgent and uh, the, the state government should really get on with this job. Now, that you also point to uh, the Ken Lay report and in May, June, I think, the Labor government received a report into the potential establishment of a second injecting room in the CBD and this was, report was prepared by uh, the former police commissioner, Ken Lay. Uh, that sat with the current government and they haven't released any part of it. Uh, and so we don't really know what the findings of that report are, but we, we would argue that it needs to be released. And in fact, in as I, uh, as I was preparing for this interview this morning, I started to get a little bit cross about this. So I wrote to my local member last night. I sent my local, uh, state member an email last night saying, why aren't you releasing this report? Let's have a look at what it says. Uh, we would think, and, and hopefully it'll tell us, that there is a strong argument, just like this data tells us, there's a strong argument for a second injecting facility, uh, this time in Melbourne CBD. But we need that report to be released so that we can actually have a look at it and see what the recommendations are. Absolutely. I think that's an amazing point that we can write and should write to our local representatives saying this is important. Please release the report. Um, and that is an action we can all take today after you finish listening to this interview and this show. Um, but, yeah, I think one important thing that I wanted to highlight just before we wrap up is... It's so important for, you know, medically supervised injecting rooms or overdose prevention centres, because that's what they are, the overdose prevention centres. Mm. They can't be locked away in some, you know, random industrial um, place, <laughs> out of sight, out of mind, you know, fearful of whatever neighbourhood people think. <laughs> um, but, like, you need the centres where there is actual need and it's why the medically supervised injecting room in Richmond works because it's right where there is need. Same thing with the city of Melbourne. We need it exactly where there is need. Stigma plays a role. It's an evidence-based health prevention service. It's so effective at reversing overdoses. There's not been a fatality inside an overdose prevention centre here in um, North Richmond um, and I'm sure that would be similar across the world. Um, That's right. Yeah. But, yeah, is there anything else uh, you want to leave with the one minute we have left? Sure. Just 
just to your point around um, uh, really what I think you're pointing to is, is the sort of very basic principles of healthcare, which say that people uh, you know, with health needs should get the right care at the right place at the right time. That's a that's you know, a, a no-brainer in healthcare and an overdose prevention service ticks all of those boxes. Right care, right place, right time. So Amazing, Scott. Thank you. Right care, right place, right time. And thanks so much for coming on the show today um, to speak about this. It's an incredibly important issue, but thank you. Thanks, Inez. Nice to catch up again, and thanks for having me, and thanks for your interest in the topic. No worries. Thank you so much, Scott. Bye. And that was Scott Drummond, who spoke to us with so much passion, who is from the Victorian Alcohol and Drug Association, about the data that was released from the coroner's court in Victoria, where fatal overdoses have increased across the board, um, not just in the city of Melbourne, but across Victoria. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. Okay, um, on our International Overdose Awareness Day special, um, yeah, so in the studio we have guests, our guests today, we have Finn from Harm Reduction Victoria from the 24-7 Needle and Syringe Program in St Kilda, who's the founder of the International Overdose Awareness Day, and Andy, Harm Reduction and NSP worker from the Western Suburbs. Um, yeah, so how are you guys going? Good. Good, <laughs> yeah. Awake. <laughs> it's humbling. Mm. Isn't it waking up early is humbling already? <laughs> You must be used to it. <laughs> well, since I've been unemployed, I've been unemployed for a couple of months. It's been, it's, it's, de- I've definitely sort of realised, um, yeah, it's, it's a thing. Getting up in the morning is a thing. <laughs> All right, mate. So, guys, Finn, maybe Finn first. Um, can you give us a bit of a history about the about the origins of International Overdose Awareness Day? Like, your knowledge of how it's celebrated, like, as we were talking about a bit, how it's celebrated over, or commemorated, uh, and what it means. What does it mean to you? Yeah. Well, the history um, of it really is that I was a family therapist in my early social work career and um, came across people who had lost loved ones in their families. And I was shocked uh, not only by... The grief that they, uh, I wasn't shocked by the grief that they felt, but I was shocked by the response from the communities where they lived. And it was a rural situation which seemed to, uh, I thought maybe it's because of the rural situation and uh, lack of knowledge about drugs. 
And then um, I went to work at the Needle and Syringe Program, the 24-7 program uh, in St Kilda for the Salvos. And over the desk, I met so many people who had lost friends and partners and, um, you know, some up to 17 uh, people had gone from people's lives and there didn't seem to be a spot in the calendar or even a time uh, that they could kind of pause and reflect on those people with any sort of pride. Um, they'd often been uh, isolated by the family and um, not allowed to go to the funerals and uh, the devastation, wow. yeah, it felt to me that it was going, it was having an impact on them and yeah. how they felt about themselves. And I felt that uh, we were mature enough, you know, uh, in uh, as a community to offer a hand to them to say, no, we um, we do care about you and we care that you've lost your loved ones and your friends and uh, we're going to acknowledge it. And... Um, I guess that I did get involved with uh, some parents at that stage as well. Yeah. And uh, they felt too that they, for the first time, they could talk in public with pride about the child that they had lost. And uh, it, was, it wasn't always straightforward for people. Uh, and but they desperately wanted uh, to be able to voice how they were feeling about what had happened. Um, so, yeah, so um, that we also we had a heroin glut, a so-called heroin glut in uh, 1999 and 2000 in Australia, and uh, the numbers of fatalities from overdose seemed extremely high. Uh, they are much higher now, but they did seem high back then. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, we started a small, uh, had a small, um, event in the backyard at the St Kilda Crisis Centre. And, uh, we, but in the lead up to the day, we gave away 6,000 ribbons. Yeah. Uh, sent them to New Zealand. So already, uh, there'd been interest from overseas. So from the very beginning, there was an e enormous response to the day and what it stood for. And so, just, just, yeah, like, have you seen, how is it commemorated overseas? Mm. Just, just so we can compare and contrast, like, mm. how, because in Australia, it's, it's, it's completely invisible on the media. It well, not commercial media, but yeah, the general mainstream media. Yeah. It's been, you know, every year we get little pockets of media, uh, in Australia here and there. Um, I have put it down to, uh, partly stigma still, um, partly the fact that people don't, uh, understand what the day is about. They, there's so many misconceptions around who is dying. Yeah. from overdose there's so many misconceptions about what uh if you don't die but you you uh are left with the ramifications of having had an overdose um in which you can be permanently disabled yeah. um those people are totally invisible in yeah. our discourse and um I I look at America. I sent my boss yesterday a clip from America, from Chicago. 
Illinois, and it was a five-minute news segment. And I think they said the words International Overdose Awareness Day eight times in that five-minute segment. And um, and very bravely, uh, three mothers spoke about the children that they'd lost. Um, and uh, I I don't know. I, this sounds a little bit hoity-toity of me, but I sort of think it's a bit about our reserved nature. You know that we we have. Uh, it's taken a long time for the AOD um, uh, community to even um, really feel that they've got a right to push on these things, to push uh, for naloxone to be um, everywhere, and we we still haven't achieved it. But um, at least we're starting in these last couple of years to really understand that we've got a right to talk about what's going on, and uh, we know we can prevent a lot of these deaths, um, and we're being kind of barriers are put up in front of us not to do it, and that's a tragedy basically. Andy? Yeah, so, yeah, same question, like, what what does the Overdose Awareness Day mean to you, I get, yeah, to you? Um, yeah, and, and what's, like, if you had any involvement with it before? Or? Well, I guess, um, for me, it's twofold. Um, uh, it's, uh, you know, I've been working in harm reduction for 23 years, um, um, but also, you know, I, um, many of my friends and including myself have used heroin here and there over the years. And, um, uh, my first, the first of my friends to die of an overdose was in 1996. She was 22 years old. Um, uh, the stigma around drug use was such that her parents didn't allow any of her friends to attend the funeral. Um, which I would put as a form of lateral violence, like everyone's hurting there and it would be wrong for us to blame each other. We're living within a society that doesn't really care very much about people and their struggles and um, certainly my experience looking at who dies, um, it's it's um, the long-term users of particularly heroin um, who are survivors of childhood trauma. Uh, in many cases, uh, extensive histories of abuse and um, physical and sexual violence and you know, we don't really look after people very well, and this is um, this is the end product. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you know the the stigma is such that uh, that that part of the story never really gets told, and we just we just see a bad person of no value dying, and um, I think that's one of the issues with having it in media in Australia, um, and I don't know about other places, but certainly in Australia, uh, especially where you've got a comment section, is that you get a lot of um, people voicing the opinion that you know that the they're kind of glad they're dead and it serves them right and it's their fault. Oh, wow. So um, it is really it is really tough. Yeah, it is really tough. Yeah. Um, I had three friends die between late 2021 and early 2022 in, um, in quick succession. Yeah. And um, all of those people, um, yeah, history of trauma and early, you know, in one person, uh, he was living on the streets from the age of eight. Um, so, yeah, they're really behind the eight ball. And it's kind of like, it's the tip of the iceberg. It's that pointy bit that shows that we live in a society where we don't really look after yeah. our, our our people in highest need, yeah. Yeah, I, I just wanted to jump in on that. Um, 
you know, the really vile media commentary that does come out um, when people, especially, in, you know, people who use um, drugs intravenously are talked about in, in the Australian media landscape that ties into this much broader demonization of people who rely on social security, of people who are in public housing. There's so much so much punching down that is enabled by mainstream media across the political spectrum, whether yeah, it's, absolutely. you know, centrist media or, you know, much more right-wing conservative media that um, really, you know, fails to see the humanity but um, actively dehumanizes um, people rather than, you know, recognizing that we're all in community and we all should be, you know, seeing the intrinsic human worth of, of everybody else. Can I just say on that, like, I, when the st- the stats um, from the coroner's court came out in February, I was still working at CoHealth, and I did it like an interview, an ABC thing for them. And when they were speaking, to, when they asked me, and I told them, and they asked me, so you know, have you overdosed? And you know, and I told them, and how many people do you think you've lost? For them, it was all about the numbers. Mm. Yeah. It was all about the numbers, and they just they couldn't believe. And and as you just. It was it was such a sanitized um, yeah it was all about data it was mm. just like so give me some numbers yes yeah. yeah, that sensual uh, sense um, the sensationalism that goes along with this mm. you know it's like prurient we all you know we're looking in to see the devastation and in fact um, we're completely missing the point and. Um, I just feel for people who are on the other end of that, um, wanting to actually, you know, lift up um, their child and remember them with pride or their partner or their friend. And, um, yeah, I've been really... It's really interesting that you sort of bring this up because I've only uh, seen one really devastating response to Overdose Awareness Day, which was, you know, the typical, um, I'll let them all die and all this sort of thing. And, you know, which is also incredibly ignorant, um, because, uh, and, and actually has, uh, really been, you know, stopped us from, um, getting the information out there because, there are so many, as they uh, other worker from harm reduction talked about. Um, there are so many uh, prescription drugs out yeah. there that are causing the havoc. In fact, I think that they are causing the most damage yeah. in terms of statistics yeah. these days. That um, people are being idiotic about it. You know, they really do not have a clue that. Um, so they're not only dividing people. They're dividing the drug. You know, they're saying that um, oxycodone is not heroin. And, you know, all these drugs are opiate-based and they're all creating the same response in the body. Um, And also, they're also not uh, exploring the fact that, yes, people are dying of uh, alcohol, benzodiazepines, um, and, you know, people can overdose on meth. It's a different yeah. type of overdose, um, but you can overdose on uppers. Yeah. So, so do you guys see it as a day of commemoration? Do you see it as an awareness raise? Like, yeah, what do you see mm. as International Overdose Awareness Day, maybe, Andy? Look, for me, <clears throat> as I said before, it really is personal. Like, today's a day I, I okay. do think of those. For my friends who aren't around anymore and, um, you know... 
and think about, you know, what can I do, I guess, um, in my professional life. And in my personal life, I guess, um, letting people know um, that it's important. It's important to me and, yeah, and that those of my friends who, you know, do still use drugs, that, um, that, that they're important people, that you don't have to live a life in a particular way to have a, a life well lived. Mm. Um, you know, there's no, there's the trappings of success of our society are, are kind of meaningless and, and pointless. And, um, you know, and I guess it does come back to harm reduction also at a theoretical level. Like it's, uh, the basis of harm reduction is don't focus on the drug use, focus on the harms. Yeah. And so, you know, like you were saying before, whether it's prescription or heroin, it doesn't matter. Whether it's alcohol or, or, um, oxycodone, it doesn't matter. You know, whether it's, um, you know, a gambling addiction or a heroin addiction, it doesn't matter, you know. It's actually about people and their lives and their well-being and what we can do to support people to mm. live in this society because everyone's entitled to a life. Yeah. It, it, in listening to you talk like that, Andy, it reminds me that uh, or makes me think that um, it is for, first and foremost for me too a day of commemoration and remembering mm. and... Um, uh, and acknowledging and um, knowing that the joy that people brought, you know, has been just buried under mm. their last act or something that they did, the way they chose to live. And um, because it feels like as uh, alcohol and drug workers, we are just, or harm reduction practitioners, we are fighting the battle every day for um, improved access mm. to services and um, the lowering of stigma and, mm. you know, but this is a day uh, for us to shout it out to the world. But first and foremost, it's a day to actually acknowledge that um, we have lost people that mm. we were very truly close to and loved. Yeah. And look, um, you mentioned numbers before, Spike, and... Yeah. <clears throat> they can be um, depersonalising, but also, you know, one of the drivers of um, harmful drug use is homelessness, and we're li- living through a time of unprecedented homelessness, and and we see, you know, the consequences of that in many ways, including overdose deaths. So yeah, um, uh, was, as you say, so, so shall you reap, you know. That we don't have a safe space. Mm. I guess one of the things I was going to ask about was, you know, another safe, you know, uh, safe injecting space. That we don't have a space where people can meet um, and use safely. You know, there's Mm. only one in the whole state. Is is outright. You know, because you know, when when I have conversations with people about that, I point out that there's like a pub on every second corner, Hmm. and, and they're next to schools. And people are okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But suddenly... There's a pub right across the road from that primary school in North Richmond yeah, where everyone's been there for jumping years. up and down about the injecting <laughs> room. It's like, are you yeah. serious? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, not to mention the rampant promotion of gambling, for example, yeah. as another, like, hugely drinking and gambling are hugely socially normalised mm. um, in Australia. And, and yet... You know, when you look at the the massive, like, positive cultural weight that's afforded to both of those things, I think gambling a little less so, and then look at the way that people are dehumanized in relation to the use of other substances, um, it's just an absolute gulf between the two. Um, but, yeah, look... Thank you so much, Finn and Andy, for joining us on International Overdose Awareness Day. Spike, do you want to sign off with any last words? Um, only um, to, it, try, if, 
try not to be alone if this is a difficult um, time. Um, yeah, and reach out to people. Yeah. yeah, good words. Take care of yourselves, everyone, and um, we will uh, join you back again next Thursday morning on 3CR 855 AM. You've been listening to Thursday Breakfast. And now we're going to go to the track Mabajish from R3D, which is from the record label BLTNM, which is an independent record label based in Ramallah in Palestine. from R3D from the independent record label and collective BLTNM based in Ramallah in Palestine. And we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Um, and we are now joined by Bo Newham from NAPWA, the National Association of People with HIV, who joins us to discuss the recent launch of free nationwide HIV self-testing kits available for home delivery, an initiative in partnership with Queensland Positive People. Bo is the project lead of the National HIV Self-Testing Project at NAPWA. You can find out more about HIV self-testing and order a kit by heading to self.hivtest.au. Good morning, Bo. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Um, so I thought maybe we could um, begin by jumping into the importance of, um, I guess, discussing and amplifying um, 
the needs of people living with HIV in Australia and the importance of community-led change in striving for health equity. So could you speak a bit to the role that this grassroots action and community-led action has had in driving better outcomes for people living with HIV as well as people at risk of acquiring HIV in Australia and how NAPWA's work fits into this? Yeah, of course. I, I think it's really... You know, it's really hard to undersell the impact of grassroots activism has had on the HIV response in Australia. Like Australia is seen as having one of the best HIV responses in the world, um, and a lot of that began with the third Australian National Conference on AIDS, which was in Tasmania in 1988, where people living with HIV stormed the stage and kind of stood up publicly for the first time saying, we are the ones living with the virus. Like, we need to be spoken to um, on these issues, not just spoken about. And I think that really set the tone for the next, um, you know, uh, almost two decades, uh, sorry, more than two decades of of work where government, um, health and the community have all been kind of working together on kind of meeting the needs of people with HIV and people at most most at risk of acquiring HIV. Mm. Um, so NAPA itself is a body which is made up of state or territory-based bodies of people living with HIV, and we we try to step forward and ensure that um, both the the needs of people who have been living with HIV long term um, in Australia now more than fifty percent of people with HIV are aged over fifty. Um, but also new people who are newly acquiring or people who are migrating to Australia with HIV. Um, it's so, you know, it's more important than ever as HIV diversifies in our community that kind of it's where going to the people living with HIV to kind of really lead and kind of decide what the main focus is going to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you um, raising that um the, the sort of demographic change that's occurring as well with, um, you know, migrants that um, are living with HIV and, and and the need to sort of be attuned to how to best meet their needs um, as they enter the community. Um, so I guess coming to uh, the, the centrality of person-centered care in, in this approach, I know that in 2022, the Australasian Society for HIV, um, Viral Hepatitis and Sexual Health Medicine, or ASHM, and NAPWA jointly convened a roundtable of experts to forge a consensus on the significance of person-centered care for people living with HIV and people at risk of acquiring HIV. So a key statement that came out of that roundtable was issued in late June this year, and I was hoping you could tell us about the core principles of person-centered care and how they factor into the push for HIV self-testing nationwide. So the push for person-centered care... um so NAPWA has largely come out of an increased focus on the quality of life for people living with HIV, um, but it's a kind of perspective on health that I feel like everyone can benefit from, not just people living with HIV. And what it does, it really tries to reshape the the relationship people have with their medical, um, like medical services, their doctors, but like the full branch of their engagement with the medical um, medical industry. So a core principle of it is respecting a person's autonomy, um, their dignity, their rights, um, and respecting a person's decisions about their own health care and the, the impact of their, their experiences on those decisions. Um, 
Yeah, uh, and this is a key part for me, I think, um, supporting a person's ability to lead the dialogue about their own health. Um, and lastly, it's trying to build a relationship between people and healthcare professionals um, that's grounded in understanding and trust. Um, obviously, these are very big ideals, and, you know, with the um, healthcare system, how it is on the moment, there is a lot of pressures on especially general practitioners or GPs to um, that's really impacting their ability to kind of implement um, this type of care with all of their patients. Um, but, yeah, I think if we're going to see the best outcomes for people, um, this is the kind of approach that, you know, we really need to be centering at the, every point of our relationship with the healthcare system. Of course, um, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate you bringing that structural view into it as well and, and looking at how those downward pressures um, on on health professionals and on the health system um, can, you know, detract from a person-centered care approach, um, but also that there needs to be that bottom-up work uh, within training and education within the healthcare system to make sure that they are centering um, the individual that they're working with um, rather than treating them as a, you know, you know, pathologizing individuals uh, on the basis of their diagnosis. Um, so how does the HIV self-testing delivery service work and how do people access it? And, you know, coming back to that question about person-centered care, how does self-testing differ from um, the current standard procedure for HIV testing? So HIV self-testing in Australia has been available for a number of years um, when the first HIV self-testing product, um, the Atoma HIV self-test, was approved um, for sale in Australia. So the Atomo self-test kit has, is available in commercially in pharmacies in Australia, so people can just go out and buy it if they would wish. Um, our service, um, HIVtest.au, essentially would al allows anyone to go online, um, fill out a very short order form. Like we have a very low barriers approach to ordering an HIV self-test kit. Um, so all you need to do is put in your name, your address, um, confirm that you're over 18, and we'll send out um, two HIV self-test kits to you. Um, and we can send to anywhere that Australia Post covers. Um, other than our service and the Otomo test kit, um, all other services in Australia require um, it to be either a face-to-face -face service or a service where you have to send in a sample um, through the mail and then receive your results through either a phone call or an SMS. Um, for us, uh, HIV self-testing has been is really important because we know from the epidemiological data that there ha is a number of people in Australia that are living with HIV that aren't aware of their diagnosis. Tends to sit um, at around 10% of the HIV positive population and we really know that we need to diversify the, the, the different ways in which people can have an HIV test to kind of fit into what their needs are rather than expecting them to come to the services that um, we currently have on offer. Um, already we've seen a really big uptake of the HIV self-testing kit from all around Australia um, and I think it's just been really important, especially for people that um, may 
struggle to have a clinic near them that they're comfortable in talking about HIV with, or they just may not have a clinic near them in general. Um, but also, we've also seen, um, I will take for example, uh, women who get diagnosed with HIV are really overrepresented in late diagnosis. So that means that they've had HIV for some time before they get diagnosed. Um, and we've spoken to some of those women, and a lot of them have said that they were almost talked out of having an HIV test um, by health professionals who thought they weren't at high enough risk in or- order to satisfy kind of the need for an HIV test. So this kind of, if people are experiencing a sort of gatekeeping of testing, HIV self-testing allows them to kind of sidestep that a bit and just go directly to the test if they feel like it is best for them. Yeah. And I think, you know, having that that element of privacy and self-determination over the way that you engage in, um, you know, in testing is really important. But I also understand that, you know, um, being outside of a clinical setting means that people might not necessarily know how to access support to navigate their results. So I know that uh, the website has information about this. Um, could you let us know about where people can access support to navigate the test results once they come through and, you know, whether there's anything else you'd like to share um, as we wrap up? Yeah, of course. So when you receive the test kit, you receive um, a kind of an info pack that kind of runs you through the possible outcomes of the HIV self-testing kit um, and where to best access services. In Australia, we're very lucky in that there's a, um, some incredible services at the state level, but also national hotlines that can respond to people um, 24-7. Um, so they're all listed. Uh, other than that, um, yeah, there's such a... We really tried to make the website kind of as focused as possible and really give people the top-line messages. I think, you know, the most important message for everyone um, in Australia right now is that HIV is no longer a death sentence. It is a manageable condition... Um, if people are on treatment, they can get to a point where they can no longer um, transmit the virus sexually and that the kind of the expectation of how long you would live would, is exactly the same if you're on treatment than if you, if you weren't. And I think there's those core messages really bringing people to a point where HIV isn't that kind of terrifying um, specter that is holding over from the 1980s, 1990s, um, can really help people kind of contextualize HIV to 2023 mm. and just focus in on the fact that knowing your status is the best possible thing you can do for your health, whether that's positive or negative. It's not knowing that is really um, putting your health in danger. Yeah, I think um, emphasizing knowing your status is so important because really what we're talking about is, um, you know, for people that do live with HIV, it's the management of a chronic health issue like so many other chronic health issues. Um, and by being informed about these things and, you know, normalizing treatment, normalizing self-testing, normalizing knowing your status, I think this is um, some excellent work that NAPWA and so many other community-led organizations have been doing to break down stigma in the broader community and to make sure that people that are living with HIV or at risk of acquiring HIV, um, you know, understand that they're supported and that, you know, their their situation is understood within context and they're treated with dignity. So thank you very much, Bo, for um, joining us today. 
Thank you so much. Have a great morning. You too. And that was Bo Newham from NAPWA, the National Association of People with HIV, who joined us to discuss the recent launch of a free nationwide um, HIV self-testing kits, which are available for home delivery. And this free uh, delivery initiative is in partnership with Queensland Positive People. Bo is the project lead of the National HIV Self-Testing Project at NAPWA. And you can find out more about HIV self-testing and order a kit by heading to self.hivtest.au. You're listening to Summer Programming on 3CR Breakfast. Stay tuned to 3CR on 855 AM, 3CR Digital, and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. To women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent to women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent to women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. Are you a 3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. It helps us remain financially independent and is an important part of our community governance. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation and $300 solidarity. Become a 3CR subscriber today. 3CR Radical Radio. Let's make history. Motorcade for Palestine. We will be back bigger and louder at 12pm on the 23rd of December. Meet opposite Faulkner Cemetery. Our calls will echo through the streets to show that Burnt City stands and drives for Free Palestine. Join the Sit Intifada, Free Palestine Melbourne, Black People's Union, Renegade Solidarity Audio Force at 12pm on the 23rd of December. Follow Renegade Solidarity Audio Force on Instagram for more information. Motorcade for Palestine, a 3CR supporter. You can try to avoid us, but it's pointless. You can never avoid the voices of the voiceless. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.